So now, ladies and gentlemen, it is start time. Are you ready for start time? From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. This week, our guest is Wayne Kramer, musician and lead guitarist for the legendary Detroit rock band, the MC5. He'll discuss the lows of addiction and prison and the highs of performing live. If musicians are tuned in to each other and have a fundamental agreement about what they're trying to do, everything works beautifully. We'll also review new music from hip-hop artist No Name and pay tribute to the late Chicago blues legend Otis Rush. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later on we'll talk with musician Wayne Kramer, legendary guitarist for the Detroit band The MC5, currently on tour celebrating the 50th anniversary of that band's signature debut, Kick Out the Jams. We'll talk to Wayne about his new memoir, his struggles with drug and alcohol addiction, and his time in prison, and how that helped turn his life around. But first, we have to pay tribute to the late, great Otis Rush. Well, I can't quit you, babe. But I got to put you down for a while. That is Otis Rush with I Can't Quit You Baby, his first single in 1956. Otis Rush died recently at the age of 84. Jim, not as well known as some of the great uh, Chicago blues icons, you know, Muddy Waters and uh, Willie Dixon, even Buddy Guy, Howlin' Wolf. But I would say as influential as any of them, uh, a really important uh, figure in the Chicago blues scene beginning in the 50s. In fact, if he had only recorded those sides that he did with Cobra Records here in the 50s over a two-year period, uh, 56 through 58, he would be a legendary guitarist. He had a long career after that, suffered a stroke in uh, 2003 that essentially kept him off stage uh, for the last 15 years of his life. But his legacy is huge. You just need to talk to people like... uh, Eric Clapton or Peter Green of Fleetwood Mac, Carlos Santana, Stevie Ray Vaughan. His style was intense, corrosive. You know, he was, he was uh, you know, that noise melody kind of merger that was so hip 20 years later or, or, or a decade later, starting with people like Hendrix. Otis sort of had that style down in the 50s bar scene in Chicago. And you can hear it in his guitar playing. He was one of the architects of the so-called West Side Sound. There is a Mm -hmm. lot of debate in Chicago. Like, what's the difference between the West Side Blues and the South Side Blues? Some people say it was as simple as the fact that Otis Rush used a horn section Mm -hmm. instead of a harmonica player in his bands. But there was also an intensity to the sound that Otis Rush brought to his guitar playing that I think was truly, truly distinctive. The one thing about Otis Rush is that you got a sense of, you know, people talk about the blues being kind of sad music. With Otis, there was pain, there was anguish at the heart of it. Well, and there Uh, was protest music. Yeah. You know, uh, I hate to quote him again, but the late, great Lester Bangs. Uh, Toward the end of his life, the last great piece he wrote, the great guitarist Robert Quine, who's also gone, said, you need to 
listen to Otis Rush. He, Lester was depressed. He was down in the dumps. He wrote this incredible piece that I have all my students in college read, Otis Rush Mugged by an Iceberg. <laughs> and it's about that intensity, that searing pain, anguish, anger. There's no way you can listen to his guitar playing and not be moved. He was, uh, you know, he'd always be smiling on those album covers. Yeah. But if you ever saw him perform, there, (laughs) there was, that face was so serious. And he was a very soft-spoken guy. When you did interview him, I, I remember once, you know, he was talking to me and he says, you know, I don't do anything but worry. That's about all I do. I worry about my damn hard times and bills. I mean, this guy was, uh, you know, he worked in a steel mill, a packing house. He was driving a truck. You know, these guys didn't make a lot of money. They had, no. to, they had to make ends meet. He was still worried about paying rent, right. even though he was worldwide famous at that time. There was a sense of that anguish and pain in every note he played. His guitar playing was extraordinary, but he was also a great singer. I think that's probably the most underrated facet of Otis as a performer was not only could he play that guitar, but man, that guy could sing as well. Here's one of his most famous tracks, Double Trouble from uh, from the 50s, one of the first recordings he made, just a kid in his early 20s, and listen to the intensity, the, the very adult nature of the anguish in this man's voice. Double Trouble from Otis Rush on Sound Opinions. I lay awake at night, folks love, I'm just so troubled. It's hard to keep a job laid off of having double trouble. But hey, hey, yeah. They say you can make it if you try. Yeah, some of this generation is millionaires. It's hard for me to keep decent clothes to wear. That is the great Otis Rush, dead at the age of 84. Greg, that's a little bit of a track called Window from Room 25, the first proper album by an artist who goes by no name. She does have a name, Mm -hmm. Fatima Warner. Grew up here in the Bronzeville neighborhood of Chicago. Her mom ran a bookstore well-respected in the African-American community. Um, Now based in Los Angeles, making a big splash with Room 25, although she first appeared on the hip-hop scene, uh, collaborating with a lot of Chicago hip-hop talent this whole new generation, Greg. Mick Jenkins, Chance the Rapper, Donnie Trumpet, The Social Experiment, Jamila Woods. Uh, 2016 got a lot of notice for her first mixtape as a solo artist, Telephone. Now comes a full album. The name comes from the fact she was 25 when working on most of this album and also living in in one hotel room after another. Dealing with drug addiction, a turbulent relationship, all of it goes into this record. This is a song called No Name by hip-hop artist No Name from Room 25 on Sound Opinions. 
No name for people to call small to colonize optimism. No name for inmate registries that they put me in prison. I sold the answers and land. Phantom under the thread. Ten I'm riding in cities when they're scared of the feds. There's a ghost on my bike. City laid with a bullet. He wrote the scriptures for living and all the ways that he couldn't. Gave up the profit for pennies. No taste of mystery. Put in when labels asked me to sign. So my name don't exist. So many names don't exist. But in the Inglewood. And the trauma came with the rent. Only worldly possession I have is life. Only room that I died in was 25. What's an eye for an eye when won't love you back? And medicines overtaxed. No name look like you. No name for private corporations to send emails to. Cause when we walk into heaven, nobody's name gonna exist. Cause I was moving for joy, nakedness, radiance. That is No Name with a track called No Name from her new record, Room 25. Jim, uh, a lot of discussion about, you know, the name, the meaning of that name, No Name. Why do you call yourself No Name? Mm -hmm. It's a question she gets asked a lot in interviews. And, you know, I think she's trying to be addressing that in this record, um, the whole idea of identity. What does it mean? Uh, I think the, the subtext of almost every track on this record is that society tries to erase African-American people, try to make them invisible in women, our society. Women especially. Yes. And, you know, stripping of your pride, your dignity, your identity, that's, that's the essence of life. Uh, so she becomes no-name and embraces this reality and, and, and turns it into an empowering thing. You know, one of the key lines on the album is, because when we walk into heaven, nobody's name going to exist. When we walk into heaven, nobody's name going to exist. I was moving for joy, nakedness, radiance. You know, we're, we're all equal there, yeah. you know? The other thing, the album title, Room 25, that's about her turning 25 and this transition she has in her life about moving from Chicago to Los Angeles and essentially reinventing herself. And the track Windows, you know, she says, quit looking out the window, go find yourself. And that's what this record is about. Quit looking out the window. You know, leave your, your comfortable surroundings, go find who you truly are in another part of the world, and that's essentially what she's doing here. She, she comes from a heavy-duty poetry background, you know, the, the spoken word scene. Um, she's a poet first. She wouldn't say these lyrics are poetry, but they are poetic. When I hear her rap, I'm thinking of like little tributaries, you know, d diving off this river, mm. and you can follow any one of those down, and you will get a whole different layer to the song. So every time I listen to her music, I get different layers um, because there's so much nuance in, in what she's talking about. And the backing tracks, um, you know, she recorded a bunch of music with Saba, who's a really um, uh, inventive artist, and now she's working with this artist, Felix, on this record. And it reminds me a lot of that early 90s New York City hip-hop scene, A Tribe Called Quest, that hmm. vibe, Guru. Um, very jazz-oriented jazz kind of uh, music. You know, I'm, I'm getting commons like water for chocolate. That's uh, that's what I was going to say. The next thing, the other step was that sort of neo-soul, yeah. late 90s stuff. D'Angelo. When D'Angelo you know, gets a shout-out on this record. Somebody hit D'Angelo. I think I need him on this one. 
systems. You know, I love that line about maybe this is the album you listen to in your car when you're driving home late at night. And that's exactly what this album is. Greg, uh, you're covering all the bases there. A couple of things uh, you might have missed. When No Name moved to Los Angeles, she hooked up with the uh, up-and-coming underground comedy scene. So there is a lot of humor in this record. There's also a lot of frankness and honesty. Room 25. She was 25 years old. She has also said she lost her virginity. Sometimes I think she's a little frightened about this coming of age uh, into adulthood as a sexual being on the other side of the country from where she grew up. Uh, I, I think it's this is a brilliant album uh, as much musically as lyrically, you know, and, and No Name with it puts herself up there with Dessa and uh, Jamila Woods, some of the most powerful voices we have, women in hip-hop today. As always, we want to hear from you. Call and leave us a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Give us your opinion on the new No Name album or the late Otis Rush. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Coming up, we talk with MC5 guitarist Wayne Kramer about his unflinchingly honest memoir. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and our guest today is MC5 guitarist Wayne Kramer, prolific solo artist in the years since. He's here to talk about his new memoir, The Hard Stuff, Dope, Crime, The MC5, and My Life of Impossibilities. I think first, Greg, we have to start with who was the MC5, the Motor City Five, a rock band out of Detroit, Young musicians looking to make an incredible noise, building on the music of the 50s, taking it in new directions with touches of free jazz and what would come to be called punk rock. Arriving at a time, probably the most controversial year in American history up until recently, 1968, the wake of riots in major American cities, including Detroit, height of the Vietnam War, the aftermath of the civil rights movement, the Democratic National Convention here in Chicago. The MC5 never hit it big commercially, as as was expected by many people, until years later when generations of musicians have since taken inspiration from their work. Punk rock in the 70s, you know, the Ramones or the progenitors in England, Sex Pistols, Clash, groups in the alternative era like Mud Honey or Rage Against the Machine. There are dozens and dozens of artists who have taken inspiration from what they did, the MC5, in Detroit in the 60s. So it's a 50-year anniversary, Jim, of that debut album. Uh, That's from amazing. The MC5. Kick Out the Jams was recorded 50 years ago this month. That album was, uh, you know, talk about a calling card, right? Uh, it was chaotic, very live. You got the sense of being mm-hmm. at that grandy ballroom, watching this band at its peak. There was also a political veneer as well that could not be discounted. The, the, man, the band was associated with the White Panther movement. Their manager, John Sinclair, was a noted radical and self-described revolutionary. Mm-hmm. He wrote the liner notes for, for Kick Out the Jams. 
and the MC5 happily went along. Much to their chagrin, though, uh, the establishment didn't like it so much. I mean, a big department store in Detroit, Hudson's, for example, mm-hmm. wouldn't carry it because of some of the outspokenness. I mean, the FBI investigated this band. You I know? FOIA'd the <laughs> FBI file, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Wayne Kramer talks about his days in that Detroit scene, his struggle with drugs and alcohol addiction, his time in prison in his memoir. And he also talks about his career as a solo artist and music composer for uh, film and TV. Now, Wayne is currently on tour celebrating 50 years of Kick Out the Jams, and we'd like to welcome him to Sound Opinions. Wayne, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Happy to be with you. Always happy to speak to you, too. Wayne, let's start at the beginning. The MC5 comes together around a cast of young 'er ne'er-do-wells in the Detroit area. Fred Sonic-Smith on guitar with you, Michael Davis on bass, you on guitar and vocals, Dennis Thompson on drums, and the great Rob Tyner as the lead vocalist. Part of what I loved about the MC5 is that you guys were not polished, specifically Rob Tyner. He had these glasses, this weird, wild afro. He was kind of a chubbier guy. He didn't fit the mold of a rock star god like Robert Plant. No, but he was the world's greatest rock front man. Yes. Because he looked like nobody else. He sounded like nobody else. And he had a a vivid, clear vision of the future of rock and, and where he wanted to go with it. I mean, he wore glasses and he had a gap in his teeth and he had this the big shoulders and this little tiny waist and skinny legs. And he wasn't like direct from central casting, that's for sure. Hmm. We worked hard to develop an, an idea about what our band was trying to do and, and what our message was. And it was a message of self-efficacy and self-determination and that you could change the world if you did it full measures. You know, if you kicked out the jams wholly and completely, you could make something happen. I know how you want it, It's important to note, when a lot of bands in the late 60s were talking about sort of a radical revolution, a a sort of a sense of cultural upheaval was necessary in the midst of this Vietnam War, Spiro Agnew, the vice president of our country at that time, Commission on Terrorism and and the New Left, says... The band is part of a communist conspiracy to corrupt the youth of America. Wayne, you're a young guy. You're seeing all this stuff getting piled on your head. Uh, you're, you're on a rock band that's, that's making some noise out of the Midwest, and suddenly you're on the radar of the vice president of the United States. What was the, what was the feeling within the band at that time? felt like we were um, being fairly effective um, <laughs> in disturbing the power structure, they clearly used everything they had against us, and we ultimately went to court with the Justice Department over the issue of illegal wiretaps. They said that they could tap our phones because it was a matter of mm. domestic security, and we held that we were a nation of laws and not of men, and that you needed a warrant signed by a judge to tap one's phones. And the Supreme Court of the United States agreed with us. And the day before our court decision was released, the plumbers were caught taking the bugs out of Democratic headquarters in the Watergate. Mm -hmm. So our White Panther wiretap case 
led to the downfall of Richard Nixon. <laughs> I basically inserted my Stratocaster where the sun didn't shine on Richard Nixon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what's interesting, Wayne, is that you talk very openly in the book. You're kind of openly admitting, you know, hey, I just wanted to not do a regular job. I, I didn't want to work. <laughs> I wanted to have sex. I wanted to play in a rock and roll band. And yet you become these sort of avatars of this radicalized, you know, left-wing revolution. How did that transition really occur? What was the catalyst for that, for that occurring? Well, it, it wasn't that I didn't want to work. I just didn't want to do certain kinds of work. Well, right. I want, you know, yeah. I being a Detroiter, we hold hard labor in high esteem. There's nobility in working hard. So I wanted to work hard, but I wanted to work hard at something that I thought mattered. And I didn't think that uh, a, a job on the line at uh, Chrysler was going to amount to much. But the radicalization was that I was part of an entire generation that just could not stomach the hypocrisy and the corruption of American ideals. You know, at, at my core, I always saw myself as a patriot. You know, democracy is participatory. It's not just a word that we throw around. It's actually something that we do. And my understanding of the way our country functioned was if you didn't like the way the government was doing something, that you could protest it. And I protested with everything that I had. And I was part of an entire generation that protested um, the war in Vietnam, civil rights, outdated uh, 50s sexual morality, marijuana laws, and a host of other, uh, you know, the environment. <laughs> there, there was a lot to protest against. And, and um, I was one of those people that spoke out. The time has come for each and every one of you to decide whether you are going to be the problem or whether you are going to be the solution. You were right in the middle of that 68 Democratic National Convention when things got ugly. You were the only, I guess there were a number of bands that were invited to play. You were the only band that actually did play at the convention as sort of a, as a part of uh, this, the, the student movement that was occurring in protest of what was going on at the convention downtown Chicago. You set up in Lincoln Park. Um, what were your memories of that day in 68? Uh, because the, the riots started to flow downhill pretty much as soon as you got done playing, right? Yeah, it wasn't like other outdoor live music events that we all have, have been to, where people are happy and smiling and there's a good vibe. There was very heavy vibes. The Chicago police were driving their uh, Harley-Davidson tricycles through the crowd, knocking kids over. There were undercover police uh, starting fistfights with kids, uh, roughing people up. So the atmosphere was very tense. and. Uh, you know, a number of uh, the young people came prepared to fight, 
And so once the band, once we finished our set and the crowd didn't have anything to focus on, they focused their attention on the Chicago police and they were, they welcomed them with the swinging batons and uh, mm-hmm. head, head busting and arrests. And, and it was the first time that uh, mom and pop America saw it happening on the the nightly news. You know, they had never seen uh, policemen beat kids before like that, beat reporters like that, and uh, it, it uh, shocked the nation. They told you in school about freedom And when you're trying to be free, they never let you They said it's easy, nothing to it And now the army's out to get you It seemed, Wayne, that after the MC5, such intensity uh, blazed so bright for a short period of time. You go into the recording of the second album, and it's a real super intense studio experience. And you seem to have mixed feelings about that album still. You know, you were you something that you guys were, were striving for was just sort of out of reach. Well, we had no experience working in a recording studio. It takes time to learn how to be comfortable with the recording process. We had only made a couple singles before Kick Out the Jams, and Kick Out the Jams was recorded live. So on uh, back in the USA, the MC5 second album, that was really our, our education in how to record. And we were going through a lot of changes in the band, trying to, trying to ratchet up our approach, you know, to be better musicians, to be a better band. It's not that I have mixed feelings, but um, I, I know each album intimately. I know what their strengths and what their weaknesses were. And in that record's case, I think we, we did overreact to the criticism that we were so undisciplined and so irresponsible, mm. <laughs> musically irresponsible, idiosyncratic, that, that, we, that we really put a lot of emphasis on that the tempos were solid and that the guitars were in tune and that the singing melodies were on pitch and and that the lyrics were were very in fact the lyrics are more overtly political on the second album than they were on the first album Mm. but you know each of these albums is they're like my kids you know they got Mm. a a special place in my heart and uh, great records of uh, what we were trying to accomplish and yet those who, who were there, who saw the five in their heyday, or who've seen you since in your quite excellent solo career, you know, will always say the records are great, but it's live. It's the live. <laughs> what happens live? I mean, that's where I think someday when I grow up, I'm going to come to terms with jazz when I'm more <laughs> mature. But I, as I understand it, as I uh-huh. understand what you guys took from jazz— and and what you as a as a as a musician and a person have taken from jazz is that spontaneity, the unique uh, thing that can happen only in the moment. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a time if musicians are tuned in to each other and have a fundamental agreement about what they're trying to do, where everything works beautifully. You have human beings doing a most human activity of performing and creating music spontaneously, and it actually never gets any better than that. There's, you know, and I've I've had my share of of great nights of music where you're you're up on the stand and and everybody is just playing at the at the peak of their ability and the crowd is right there with you and and the lights are right and everyone looks good and we sound good and that's as good as it gets. The, those moments I, I try to grab a, a kiss from joy as it passes by. records that weren't particularly well understood in their time. Each one of those records has sort of its own legacy. And now, you know, the history says, okay, MC5 could be credited as a progenitor for metal, for punk, for sort of this melding of avant rock and jazz. You know, you guys are real innovators. It's nice if you had heard that the first time when you were when you were doing it, right? When it's kind of weird how history sort of caught up with the band. Uh, but at the time, I think you ended up feeling like this group was a failure in some ways, right? At the at the end of the run there in in seventy one, well, seventy two. Yeah, by seventy two, when you know the record, the music business, the record business had turned their backs on us and our colleagues and comrades on the left had turned their backs on us and you know we expected pushback from parents and teachers and police and prosecutors so it was like every if every road we turned to we got resistance and the pressure was extraordinary especially considering i was 24 years old and mm-hmm. you know we know now didn't even have a grown up brain yet mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah i still don't have a grown up brain When we come back, we talk with MC5 guitarist and solo artist Wayne Kramer about battling drugs and alcohol and his experience in prison. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And today we're talking with musician and author of the new memoir, The Hard Stuff, Wayne Kramer. Before the break, we reflected on how, despite never becoming a household name, the MC5's radical lyrics and its expressive onstage charisma inspired musicians in generations to come. It's ongoing. But when the group called it quits in 1972, Wayne's problems with drugs and alcohol had become uh, pretty intense. In 1975, he's caught selling cocaine to a federal agent, spends two years in prison for the crime. He's many years sober now. It took a long time and a lot of effort. I wanted to know to what extent he blames the crazy rock and roll scene and the atmosphere uh, of that time for any of the challenges he went through personally with drugs and alcohol. To zero extent, I, I don't. I don't blame the arts uh, for my lapses in rational thought uh, or or principles. 
that's defects of character that I developed on my own power. So, you know, I created most of the trouble in my own life. Uh, not all of it. I, I put a fair amount of it uh, right at the doorstep of the war on drugs, uh, which caused me immense anguish over my life and still pains me to see that uh, we have 2.3 million of our fellow citizens uh, in prison and in jail in this country. Obviously, the policy got stood on its head, but you went to prison anyway, 1975. Yep. Uh, you yeah, were caught selling joking. cocaine. You went for over two years at the Lexington Federal Prison in Lexington, Kentucky. You know, some people talk about how miserable they were in prison, and it's the sense I got in reading your telling of it in The Hard Stuff is that there was some good stuff that came out of there for you personally. You, I don't know if rehabilitation is the right word or... But there was some learning going on. You made good use out of those years that you were in prison. Am I reading that correctly? Well, humans are enormously resilient and able to find value and meaning and enjoyment in the most terrible of circumstances. And people in prison do right now as we speak. They have the same fears and ambitions as we do out here. In fact, we're all the same. Mm -hmm. um, they made a serious mistake, no doubt, but um, they're still just regular people. And yeah, I, I was able to, to use the time to improve my job skills, took advantage of every program that they made available to me. I tried to understand what was wrong with me and what mm -hmm. could I do to make sure I never came back to these penitentiaries again. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously it worked. You never, you didn't end up in prison again. Um, well, it worked. But you still had some tough work. years, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't believe prison helps anybody mm -hmm. ever. I think it may have saved my life because I was doing my worst drinking and drugging in those days and the people I was hanging out with were very dangerous people. So it, it saved me in that sense. But these are dangerous places where you're never safe. Uh, you're embarrassed. You're emasculated. You are powerless. And you're in a world of uh, violence, uh, racism, bitterness, and defeat. And um, nobody comes out of those situations better. Tell us about GL Guitar Doors, Wayne. Um, sure. You know, this organization, you and Billy Bragg uh, had this idea, can we bring music to these people behind bars? What we do is pretty simple. We find people that work in corrections that are willing to use music as a tool for rehabilitation. Today, our instruments are in over 120 American jails and prisons. 
What we do in, uh, besides just supplying instruments is we operate songwriting workshop programs, which are self-expression programs, um, where we can help one learn how to express complex and uncomfortable feelings in a positive way. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody has a story, and everyone's story needs to be told. And it's the beginning of the hard work of positive change. You know, most people in prison, they don't like being there. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't want to be in prison. And uh, if you give them the tools and the incentive, they will make the changes they need to make sure they don't come back to these terrible places again. Starship, Starship, You know, it's interesting because the politics and the art and the music, you know, there, there was a huge melting pot of that in, in Detroit. And, you know, you think about back on that era, it's, it's such a collection of characters. I mean, between the <laughs> MC5 and what was happening in Motown, which is extraordinary. But then you've got, you know, the, the wonderful story, Iggy Pop telling me uh, any, any chance he got how good the MC5 were to him and his band. They couldn't get a leg up, but here was these guys who had made it or were perceived to be making it, giving a hand up to a, a, a baby band that was trying to find its way. You know, Iggy's become obviously Iggy. I mean, he's an iconic character, but you guys saw something in that band that you liked, obviously. Oh, yeah. I mean, you couldn't deny it. He had a complete vision, and he was very clear about it. I mean, there were no performers that danced with the abandon and the rhythm that uh, Iggy Pop danced with, or still dances with. I mean, he's one of the great front men of all time. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so, yeah, of course, if uh, when Danny Fields said, is there any other bands around here like the MC5? I said, no, there's no more bands like the MC5, but you need to see the Psychedelic Stooges. I am a world's forgotten boy, the one who searches and destroys. All, you know, we were all best friends, and we all listened to the same Coltrane and Sun Ra, and we all smoked the same hash, and we all ate the same <laughs> bologna sandwiches and brown rice. And <laughs> You think about the characters, you know, coming through that scene, Iggy, and I guess, I don't know if you knew Alice Cooper at the time, but mm-hmm, uh, he, mm-hmm. he came just a little bit later, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Seeger, Bob Seeger, Mitch sure, Ryder, all sure, these characters. Sure, sure. I mean... Were, was it a close-knit community in terms of the people who were making this kind of music, which wasn't precisely mainstream, certainly at that time? Yeah, yeah, it was. It, we all knew each other. I mean, we'd all been together. We'd all known each other going back to the record hop days where we would all uh, show up at a at a church hall where one of the local DJs would uh, be spinning records and it'd be packed with teenagers dancing and and uh, your band could get up and play a 15 or 20 minute set in between mm. all the uh, uh, Motown artists that were coming by to lip sync their, their latest release. It was a very exciting time. I mean, Detroit was thriving. It was a bustling industrial city with the you know, good paying jobs and everything seemed possible in those days.
one of the um, oddest things I found in the book. You have a good buddy whose name is Ted. <laughs> and I know you and Ted Nugent came up in the same place <laughs> at the same time. Mm-hmm. All right? Mm-hmm. Um, but my God, you know, he wants to go out and shoot buffaloes and shoot anybody who wouldn't let him shoot a buffalo. And, <laughs> and just, just about, I mean, he's about, he's about 180 degrees opposite everything you stand for, Wayne. Yeah, it's 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 pretty it's pretty weird. Yeah, <laughs> you know he, he never um, had any political interest in the '60s, and I, he didn't really take it up until um, I think you know once his solo career kind of arced, and they were he was looking for something new to to uh, to keep him in the discussion, and I think he discovered that through his uh, his hunting and outdoorsman <laughs> hobby mm-hmm. that that was a, an entree into the world of uh, ra- radical right-wing extremist uh, viewpoints. You know, I, I we remain friends. I could call him up today and we could have a pleasant conversation. Um, but we have not we have yet to have a real substantive political conversation. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> and I, and I, I'm open to it. I would yeah. like to I'd like to because I know he does a lot of good in the world. You know, he works with kids. He underwrites programs for young people. And I know he's a family guy. And he, and I, and I kind of worry about him. You know, he invited Tom Morello and I to one of his gigs in, in L.A. And we went over to the House of Blues where he was playing. And we're hanging out backstage. And it's getting to be time for him to go on. And he turns around and bends over to pick up his guitar and we see he's strapped. Mm. You know, he's got this this pistol wow. in his back of he's his small of his back. Uh-huh. He's packing on the on yeah. the stage of the House uh-huh. of Blues. Yeah. And yeah. it just struck me like, gosh, what must a man's life be like that he has to go through it armed? You know, what world does he live in? How much how much fear has got to be going on there? Let me ask you a broader question about that. Sure. It seemed like even when people had political differences in that most turbulent time of the 60s, we could unite around certain things. The music could bring people together. Do you think, Wayne, that's still the case today? I mean, you play in a lot of different guises. You play in the indie rock, punk rock underground, and you play jazz, and you play with prisoners behind bars, and mm-hmm. you, you know, um, does it still have that power? Do you believe in that? Yeah, sure it does. Art, art will always have the power to make a connection between people, to, to bridge the gap between people. If I do something in music, if I tell the truth about how I feel about something, chances are there's somebody else out there that felt the same way, that reminds me that I'm not the only nutcase mm. <laughs> out here, you know, yeah. that somebody else feels the way to... Because ultimately, art confirms our humanity and tells us we're not alone. Mm-hmm. And we're all in this together. We are all in this together, absolutely. When it happened, something snapped inside made me want to hide. All alone, on my own. All alone, on my own. I stood up on the stand with my eyes shut tight. Didn't want to see anybody. Feeling happy, having a good 
I'm reading between the lines, Wayne. When the MC5 fell apart, and then you go down your path of, of drug abuse and crime and wind up in prison, it seems like there was a distance there between you and, and Fred Sonic Smith and you and Rob Tyner. You, you, you say, like, I mean, you deal with each of their passings in a couple of sentences and say, you know, we hadn't been close when he passed, but it hit me hard. Well, because we never were able to reconnect after the breakup of the band. Nothing mm. was ever resolved. Uh, we never got to know each other as grown-ups. And it it's just left as an open wound, a scar. Uh, and... Uh, there's there you know there is no closure or resolution to to uh, when people leave before their time even if even if it is uh, natural I mean what's what is an unnatural death I mean yeah right you, know, right. Like you die death. you die that's about as natural as it gets mm-hmm. um, but you know we never got a, we never got a chance to to be friends and you know, kind of review what we went through together. Uh, I, I think we probably, none of us really survived having been in the MC5. It was too much for a bunch of young guys to to walk through the fire and and all the, the ultra highs and devastating lows and the pressure and the, the friendships and the camaraderie and the undermining of all that and see it one day all go away. Um, yeah. It was it was rough, so yeah, I mean, uh, it was hard. <laughs> Tell us about, uh, you have this second career now as well, uh, scoring films and doing film work. You've been in L.A. for a long time now, based out on the West Coast. Um, what is what is that world like? How did you get into it? Well, I knew I knew the day was coming when I would not be quite so enthusiastic about getting in the van again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is a great paragraph towards the end of the book mm-hmm. about everybody romanticizes it, but it's leaving hell, sleeping on the floor night after night after yeah, night. Yeah, it's it's hard work, and and uh, you know, I I thought I could do some music for film. It always seemed like a possibility. I, I would listen to the underscore on television and and, uh, and, and movies and thought, hmm, I could do some of that. I could do something like that. I know a little bit about this. But when I finally moved to L.A. and started to pursue it seriously, I got a few jobs, and then I discovered I need to go back to school. So I started mm-hmm. uh, taking uh, scoring classes at UCLA, and uh, the union had some good orchestration classes running at the time because I had to learn the same thing that all composers have to learn is the, the language of the orchestra. Having been in a rock band all my life didn't really prepare me for where did the violins go and where did the French horns go <laughs> and you know what are the articulations that you might use on brass to give you the effect that you want for this scene. Uh, and, I, and I still take classes when I can. I, it was a recurring theme throughout mm-hmm. the hard stuff and throughout your life. You have been trying to school yourself your entire life. Yeah, I have. I still am. I'm still a student. I'm, in fact, I look forward to being a student all of my days. If you're lonely, let me try. Hey, hey, hey. 
You know, Wayne, uh, for me, it's a shame that a lot of people don't really know about the MC5 still, 50 years later. Uh, not only did you guys make uh, some incredible music, but you put a lot on the line because of some of the political views that were associated with the band. Bands like The Clash and Rage Against the Machine, uh, you had an incredible influence, and your influence is probably greater than the actual knowledge about your music specifically. Do you think that by writing this book, you've been able to impart uh, your side of the story and make a case for the importance of this great band that you were in? Well, uh, that's you know another reason that I wanted to write a memoir is to get so the story would get told from my perspective, from the mm-hmm. from the eye of the storm. Mm-hmm. You know, the the story the, the bones have been picked pretty good on the MC5 story, but I wanted it on record from my perspective that mm-hmm. that this is what happened, and uh, and I and I. I, I wanted uh, my son to know what his father had, had gone through as a young man. So sure, it's a it's a remarkable Tri- book and tricky stuff with memoir. You know, if you don't, if if you wait too long, you can die and then you lose your chance. And the other thing is kind of remembering some of the details. I would imagine you know, you're right. Just... And and I I you know of course after I finished, I remembered a few. Oh, I didn't talk about this. Oh, I forgot that part then. <laughs> But it's an unsparing book. It's it's a it's a noble book in the sense that the hard stuff uh, tells the truth. You don't always look good, Wayne. One of the reviews I read said, "I think this guy's an a hole. I would not want to meet him." <laughs> Fair but enough. I don't know. You know, Greg and I have interviewed a bunch of times, including in person. I don't think that's true. But but uh, I don't think a memoir is a valid thing unless people are being unflinchingly honest, and that's its strength. Yeah. Any any memoir that isn't. Uh embarrassing and and uh, you know couldn't be, couldn't possibly be any good yeah i mean human be, human life is messy and it's not perfect and it's not always pretty and so to tell to tell stories from a life yeah. i think you you have to go there the hard stuff is is out now dope crime the mc5 my life of possibilities and uh, wayne it's always a pleasure to visit with you Thanks, guys. I always enjoy speaking with you. You bring a fresh perspective to, to uh, the subject matter, and that makes it fun for me. That wraps up our conversation with Wayne Kramer, and now we want to hear from you. Do you have memories of listening to the MC5, or are you a new fan just discovering them? Call our hotline, leave a message with your opinion and why at 888-859-1800. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, it's time once again for us to dig up some buried treasures, some songs that are flying underneath the mainstream radar we think you need to hear. Listen to our podcast wherever you get those things or just ask your smart speaker. Play Sound Opinions. Much more information is available, as always, on our website, soundopinions.org. Sound Opinions is produced by Brendan Banasak, Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, and Andrew Gill. Sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Gary in the Chicago area. I had to comment on your Seymour Stein interview. I'm just amazed at this man and how he was able to pick out what people half his age, a third of his age, wanted to know and hear. 
at the time. Um, I was working in record stores in the late 70s and 80s, and we made it a rule where we would actually purchase more of whatever came in on Sire because we knew it was going to be great. The stable was unbelievable from Renaissance to Duncan Brown, Undertones, Ramones, Pretenders, Madness, even Modern English. He picked up on uh, I Melt With You, The Cure. Seymour Stein really made me realize that a label made a difference. So uh, keep up the great work. Really enjoy the show. Take care. Hi, my name is Nancy. I'm calling from Chicago. I'm calling to recommend to the awesome mom who called in for a prescription for non-toxic songs for her young children. So my suggestion is Billy Bragg, Sexuality. not find that appropriate for a three-year-old. I did when my daughter was three. You might want to save it till they're in the preteen years, but it's an excellent song. And I would like to suggest that the entire Billy Bragg songbook is great music for woke moms to raise their children with. Thanks for the great show, guys. Take care. Hey, this is Theo. I'm calling from Minneapolis. I am um, listening to your wonderful show about disc records, and I think that probably the most classic or one of my favorites anyway, disc records and hip-hop is uh, Boogie Down Productions, uh, Karis One, The Bridge Is Over. Saying hip-hop started out in Queensbridge, saying lines like that, man, you know them can't live. So tell them again, me come to tell them again. Tell them again, me come to tell them again. Tell them again, me come to tell them again. Tell them again, me come to tell them Manhattan keeps on making it, Brooklyn keeps on taking it, Bronx keeps creating it, and Queens keeps on faking it. So uh, I hope you guys get to play that one. It's just a really classic song, very good poetry. I'm calling about your diss track show. Diss track? Diss track. track. You skipped over one song. One track you didn't mention was a really vicious one from John Lennon's Imagine Imagine album. And obviously it's about Paul McCartney. And at the time, when I first heard it, I thought it was really harsh. Uh, what makes this song even more stinging is that George Harrison plays guitar on this song, turning in one of his all-time best slide guitar solos and showing which side of the fence he was on in this battle. Very biting lyrics about how bad Paul's music was and how sad he thought that his whole life was. A diss track toward Paul McCartney called How Do You, how do you, how do you Sleep. I love Paul McCartney, I love John Lennon, and I love George Harrison. You hate to see people you admire sniping at each other, but at least we got a great song out of it. He said, your sound you make is Muzak to my ears. Uh, Paul jabs back maybe later with Let Me Roll It. Those gentlemen didn't like each other very much at the time. Thanks again, guys. Um, that's it. Thanks.
share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.